Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This week on The Sausage, how do we do democracy when voters' relationships with political parties has ended in acrimonious divorce? And from Boris to the backstop, we get our heads around Brexit. Could a citizens' assembly find the answers that Britain's politicians cannot? G'day there and welcome to another episode of Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, coming to you as always from the Australian National University's prestigious Crawford School of Public Policy. Joining me as she does each week is my colleague from the School of Politics and International Relations, the wonderful Dr. Maria Tuffliger. Great to see you this morning, Maria, after a long weekend. What's, what have you made of the political climate? Are things settling down now since the election, now that it's a few weeks in the past? Are we, are we starting to sort of get a sense of what's changed? Ah, well, hello, everyone. Uh, So I guess in one way we could kind of say that politics has sort of settled down in the sense that we're sort of talking about whether or not the government can get its tax agenda through the Senate, which I feel like is what we talked about a lot last year and the year (laughs) before that and the year before that and the year before that. But um, but I guess politics has sort of been overwhelmed by the sort of AFP raids last week on both um, the home of a, a News Corp journalist um, and the ABC itself. So so a lot of like business as usual and big, big event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's been quite a, sort of an interesting start in a way. I mean, not that we've seen Parliament back or anything like that, but um, yeah, there is a, there's a sort of a sense that there's some big stories around, but also that in a, in a way, as you say, not much has changed. We'll come to, I think, both of those things and, and others as well. Um, I'm also delighted to welcome to the uh, humble studio here at uh, Policy Forum, Professor Mark Evans. He's Director of Democracy 2025 at the Museum of Australian Democracy, and he's also Editor of Policy Studies. Welcome, Mark. Hi. Great to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you along. You're something of an expert on trust. That's a, a, a very big research interest of yours, the, uh, the the interplay of trust or the role of trust in democracies. Um, how did you come into that sort of what, – what directed you to that uh, as a research interest and, and, and why do you say it's so critical? Well, over the last – I'd say probably about four or five years now, um, a group of us in the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis have been – um, evaluating the the issue of declining public trust, not just in Australia, but but globally. We've ran national surveys. We have an ongoing focus group um, project. Um, and all the data that was emerging, particularly from our survey on Australia, um, was that the, the trust deficit was getting greater. Um, and our modeling showed that if um, existing trends continue, by 2025, no more than 10% of Australians will trust their politicians and political institutions. Um, and we thought that this was a potential doomsday scenario and it was fundamental to do something about it. So that's why we created Democracy 2025, Bridging the Trust Divide. It's about um, 
evaluating what the evidence tells us about the strengths and weaknesses in Australian democracy and driving a national conversation across all sectors about what Australians can do really to be the best democracy that we can be. Yeah, well, has the election that we've just had set you back on your heels in any way? I mean, obviously, uh, the major parties continue to uh, sort of shrink in their, I guess, what they might call their reliable bases. In in uh, Queensland, Labor's vote was was in the mid twenties. Uh, I think uh, didn't even reach thirty in in WA. So, in the two mining states, in particular, Labor's primary vote has tanked, and that's been part of a trend. And really, Labor hasn't had uh, uh, you know strong primary votes for a long time now. Um, are we and, and of course you know there's much talk about this you know the 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 increasing role of minor parties independents and so forth did did you learn anything in particular from this last election well i'm a political scientist by background so i would say that this election was kind of a renaissance of some old standards it's the economy stupid um i don't know if you saw the the launch of the latest pew report on trust in in democracy um, but 64% of Australians are now feeling profoundly economically insecure. Um, and that sense of economic insecurity impacted on, on what became very local specific contests. So it was really interesting the way in which, you know, Warringah was a climate change election, mm, mm. right? Um, but in a whole host of other marginals where people are having it tougher, it was the economy stupid. Is this though, does this show, you know, like a gap between the statistics on one level and the lived experience on the other? I mean, we've had 28 years of unbroken growth in this country and that's uh, always lauded as this great thing. It is uh, brilliant that we did avoid recession around the GFC and perhaps the intergenerational unemployment that might have flowed from, you know, genuinely going into a recession. But the statistics about, you know, company profits being high and growth remaining on the positive side and so forth are one thing. And yet, as you say, we have this lived experience of people where they're feeling economically insecure. What's going on? Well, the first thing I would say is that um, in our focus group um, project, there has been a common trend over the last two years that um, Australians have had a problem with with Shorten um, in terms of the, the trust issue. Um, now, that may be because of the media's role in uh, uh, in making short and almost synonymous with problems within the trade union movement and, and trust within the trade union movement. Um, but he has consistently played poorly in focus group um, research, even in relation to Turnbull. Mm. So Turnbull was way ahead of him. Um, and Morrison turned out to be um, a miraculous campaign painter, you know, yeah, yeah. Lazarus rising, you know, yeah. he came back from, from the dead. Um, he, he does believe his party, in miracles, yeah. doesn't he? But he was able to connect with everyday Australians in a way that his predecessor didn't and in the way in which Bill Shorten didn't. I mean, the most amazing thing about that campaign was the way in which it was all, you almost felt that it was, it was labor that was the incumbent. Yes, that's right. It was, and it was Labor that was on the back foot. And you could see that even from some of the early performances of Bill Shorten. Uh, there was a moment in the, uh, I think it was in about the first eight or nine days, Maria, you may remember this, when Bill Shorten was asked about the economic impacts of his uh, much more ambitious uh, emissions reduction uh, agenda. Uh, and it ended up being an argument with one of the journalists there. And from that moment on, and for a start, it struck me at the time that Shorten was 
unnecessarily defensive about it and they'd gone into the election with climate change as a positive for Labor and yet in that moment it seemed to become something about which he was defensive and it stayed that way. Yeah, I think Bill Shorten um, underwent a significant degree of scrutiny and at times perhaps a lot more so than the government simply for the fact that they had an agenda, Yeah, uh, which sort of returns us to um, where the government is sort of at right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So they, 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 they were the ones who took the initiative, that is Labor. They put up a pretty detailed suite of policies and that meant those policies were there for being critiqued. They, they were there to be advocated, but they were there also to be attacked by, by the opposition, the opposition in this case being the government. And, uh, and that's what Morrison said about doing. As you say, Mark, he, uh, Morrison turned out to be a pretty damn focused campaigner and, um, well, we, we've, we've always known that economic management um, is a fundamental indicator of, of, of electoral behaviour. And what seemed to have occurred is that when people are feeling economically insecure, mm. they're going to go for the devil that they know. They're going to go for the incumbent rather than a more high risk. But, but didn't Labor take the, uh, make the judgment, and it seemed on the face of it to be a reasonably sensible judgment, that there was this level of economic insecurity, there was this level of widespread kind of umbrage in the community about companies, get, you know, profits soaring and wages remaining flat. And Labor's whole agenda was constructed around this idea of fairness and redistribution. So why didn't that cut through? Well, I think, you know, political communication specialists would say that the that the program was too complex, that there were too many messages um, yeah. And the quiet Australians were were looking for trust building messages from from Bill Shorten mm. that you're going to be all right with us. Yeah. Um, and Morrison was because obviously this was reflected as well in the sweeteners that he gave um, through the budget um, was able to convince them that they were best off with him at least in the short term. Yeah. Morrison it, is like a. He's a brilliant reactive politician, right? He's 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 really fast on his feet. He can really read politics. He can read um, much know, better instincts in that sense that's than, right. than Turnbull had. Yeah, and and I mean, and if you look at his prime ministership to date, like it is largely uh, reactive, and part of that's just to do with the circumstances he inherited, right? A party in crisis that needed to be sort of consolidated and bedded down. Um, uh, but I guess this is sort of the question for uh, Prime Minister Morrison is. Will he proceed to continue to be a reactive prime minister, um, you know, or was this just a product of, you know, the circumstances he inherited and going into an election? And this is kind of a bit um, concerning because he's got to he's got to govern for three years, and it's and and, and Australian mm. public policy. I don't think it's a secret to say has has been in drift for almost a decade now, and part of that is to do with the fact that people don't really know what they want to do and how to change things, and also we have undone some of the decisions made mm. and, and haven't really got a coherent idea of what's going to replace them. Yeah, Mark introduced this or mentioned this idea that Scott Morrison has uh, referenced a few times. Uh, I think from election night onwards, uh, this idea of the quiet Australians, I think this is a kind of a, a backhanded <clears throat> slap at the you know those noisy people who are advocating change, essentially. Now, some of those same quiet Australians are suddenly making a whole lot of noise about religious freedoms when it seems to me there's really not much here to... Uh, you know, be worried about, but uh, nonetheless, uh, people who were supposedly quiet are now making a lot of noise. Uh, but w what do you think, Maria, about these quiet Australians? Is this uh, are these the same people that Menzies referred to, the forgotten people? Is this what he's trying to animate here? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think rhetorically he's fashioning a group of people that you know, he will argue voted for him for a set of values that he represents. But I, I'm a bit sceptical about, um, you know, ideas about Australian battlers as there's very little evidence that they ever existed in the AS data. And I'm, I guess, suspicious about quiet Australians as well uh, being a sort of coherent group that politics and, polit- and political parties can speak to. I think Morrison won the election uh, because Labor looked really risky um, and and angered too many uh, groups with something to lose. And whether or not those people actually have something that combines them into something called the Quiet Australians is, I think, open to analysis. And mm. we should well, be Howard critical had, of these narratives. Yeah, maybe. But Howard had the, you know, the Howard Battlers, the so-called sort of blue-collar types or and tradies and people who might have been ordinarily in the past, you know, sort of on the Labor side of the spectrum who had shifted across and many of whom stayed but, but there for shi- some time. They shifted back. Most of them shifted back. We, we, In America, yeah. they called them Reagan Democrats at one stage. Um, what, what do you think? of it? Uh, yeah, Once they're I gone, think... do they ever come back? Maria says they shifted back, but I, I'm, I'm not so sure that I think once you break those lifelong allegiances, uh, you, you may well, be I think the, the evidence shows us that they, that they, are, they do move around. Mm. Um, and that we have so for example if we if we just look at the the evidence on partisan dealignment that 's the the declining emotional attachment that Australians have for the main political parties. Um, we can see now, according to the latest aes um, data, that probably no more than forty percent of Australians are emotionally attached to one of the main political parties, so then you 've got a large group of people who will move around. Um, depending on on particular um, policy issues, mm. um, and economic insecurity is is a key one there. Th- there seems to be three groups of people there. there. There's a group of people that are the most left behind, um, that are feeling extremely marginalised, who are completely disconnected from mainstream politics. So when we asked in are our, they, in our they, lim- sorry, can I ask, are they employed or are they? When you say they're the no, most disadvantaged, are they but, jobless or um, they they earn less than forty thousand dollars a year? Um, they are improportionately um, women, um, single parents, right. low incomes. Um, and, and you're talking about between 8 and 10% of the population there. Right. From, from the last Hilda data, we've seen that you know, the rich have got richer in Australia and the poor have got poorer. But the most outstanding statistic is the gap between the poor and the poorest of the poor. So when we asked this um, group of people what they liked about Australian democracy, they were given 12 choices. They ticked none of the above. So they are feeling completely mm. disconnected and they are very vulnerable to, mm. um, to emotional politics of the left or of the, or, of the right. Then you've got this much larger group of, of independent, swinging, floating voters, however you want to um, classify them. And they are mostly motivated by economic insecurity issues. Um, they are also um, profoundly impacted by um, changes in technology and the impact that those changes in technology may have on the future of work. So they're, they're feeling profoundly insecure. They're largely men of, of our middle-aged men. Mm-hmm. Um, you were going to say that, right, right, you? I think you're a little bit younger <laughs> than me. You know, um, but, but that's a group of people that are feeling very, very insecure. Um, so, that, so, that, so they are looking for, for big leadership, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they can that they can trust in. And then there's a, another group of people, and it's probably about ten to fifteen percent of the electorate that are now voting tactically on local issues, right? Uh, and this is where independents are are doing well with tactical voters who basically. So Indi is a classic example of a constituency that was dominated by the Liberals for a long period mm. of time. It was viewed to be um, a safe seat. Um, there was no competition within the electoral process. Kathy McGowan and Voice for Indi came along. Their major objective was just to make the seat competitive so that local issues would be discussed. Um, But it was a snowball that became an avalanche as a a movement. Well, they had Sophie Mirabella as the uh, sitting member, and I suppose that helped in some ways because she was a very controversial liberal, wasn't she? It did, but then there was no indication that they would then have their third successive yeah. electoral yeah, victory with a change in the nature of the candidate as well. There is some evidence though, Maria, that uh, when these seats you know, swing to independence, they tend to stay there for a while. I, I mean, Mark's point's an excellent one because not only is it a very hard nut to crack, but uh, the, the, the unique thing about this in Indi is that they've actually done it with two separate independent candidates. That is, Cathy McGowan's done it for a couple of terms, handed over to someone else, and that independent has managed to hold it, which is pretty pretty, pretty unprecedented, mm. I think. Yeah, at the federal level. I mean, I, I am not across state-level results to be able to say whether or not that has happened at the state level, but uh, in the last 30 years, there is no other federal electorate where that has happened. You know, independents are usually elected on a, a strong personal vote, and then they exit and it returns, usually yeah. to that. But they do tend to hang on to them for a while. If you think about seats yes. like Calaire, um, you know, Peter Andron held it, and uh, uh, Tony Windsor was, uh, you know, there for a while. Um, yes, you know, yes. Andrew Wilkie is another good example, and uh, Rebecca Sharkey in Mayo in South Australia. They, they tend to... Uh, you know, if voters shift to them and they develop, I think as Mark, you know, and you made that very good point a minute ago about uh, an emotional connection. It's like Mm. the voters in those areas develop a bit of an emotional connection with the independent and Mm. and they stay there. I mean, as I say, the thing about Indi is amazing is that they they stayed independent even after they lost Cathy McGowan. Mm. But you've got to break the mould of politics, which which is the interesting thing. Um, you mean the, like break the, the stranglehold of the of the major party that's, that's yeah, holding I mean, that seat? Look, if you're a Democrat, you know, you love compulsory voting. Mm. Right? When I came to Australia, I loved that I was coming to a country that had compulsory voting. Mm. However, the problem with compulsory voting is it masks social and economic change and how it impacts on, on uh, community um, cul- culture, right? And we know that um, with the existing... Um, electoral system, um, you you have to get a very significant number of votes to to reach the tipping point where your votes turn into into seats, um, and this has been the problem in British politics, for example, for forever. You know that it's been very very difficult for for minority parties to break the mold of British politics and the stranglehold of the main political parties because of the lack of fair votes within the electoral system. It's going to be interesting to see whether there is an upsurge of support now for proportional representation as a consequence of the way in which the data is increasingly telling us that people are looking for a political alternative. But those those new parties, those new movements aren't necessarily breaking through except in, in constituencies mm-hmm. like, like Indi. Or, yeah. or so I'm Indi. a total cynic 
and I I can't see the the parties shifting the voting system until they think it will suit them. Yeah, well, that's probably yeah. well, that's true. A, but but, yeah. but is it yeah. inter- it's an interesting point though. Is, is has has the Liberal Party? I mean, there's been much talk about this over the years. Has the Liberal Party sort of drifted away from its small business base, and has Labor drifted away from its blue collar base? In, in in other words, as both parties have existed now for a, a long time, and they've become professionalised, have they? Have they I think lost that's a brilliant earlier? insight. I mean, what's I think it's really interesting the way in which um, the coalition has broken trust with the business elite. I mean, that's one of the most fascinating developments in Australian politics over the last. But that's two you mean years. with the big business elite over company tax cuts, for example. Well, over the fact that you know you can be cynical and say that um, businesses have been more progressive on the liberal agenda particularly in relation to issues of corporate responsibility and climate change and gender as well yeah. leadership um, and that there's there's now basically an emerging policy vacuum between the coalition and the thought leadership within within the big mm. businesses in Australia yeah. and, and 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 externally, so we're seeing a breakup of traditional trust systems there, right? Um, which is which would be really interesting how that impacts on, for example, donations to to other um, types of social and political movement over the next period. Yeah. You're listening to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, coming to you from the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy. And uh, I have with me Mark Evans and Maria Tafflager. Uh, now, one of the ways that you can interact with us is via our Twitter handle, Apps Policy Forum, APPS Policy Forum. Uh, the Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod, and our email is podcast at policyforum.net. Now, one of the questions that's come in over the weekend is from Gaz Stevens at Cat and Hat is his handle. And he asks Marie. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Maria, can we restrict or dilute Murdoch's influence like New Zealand has? Now, I guess that speaks to a, a fair amount of commentary around about the role of particularly the Oz, the Australian that is, and, and, the, and the Daily Telegraph in the last election campaign. What do you think? Australia has one of the most concentrated, if not the most concentrated media markets in the OECD. And that has been a state of play, I think, since at least the 1980s compared to Australia internationally. Um, traditionally, uh, and over very a very long number of decades, governments in this country have, broadly speaking, not wanted to upset media companies and media proprietors. And if you actually look at the uh, sort of debates um, and legal um, wrangling around regulating the media, particularly ownership rules, uh, you'll sort of see um, this sort of influence at play. So the classic example is the um, Keating legislation from the 1980s where you could sort of be a prince of print or a, I can't remember what. Queen of screen. The queen of screen, yeah. And and this and this was a financial legal framework that really did favour existing players who were sort of interested 
interested in consolidating in either one of these kind of technological markets. And so government there delivered pretty much what they wanted. And we can kind of see this um, with other kind of more recent changes to to media laws, which effectively favour existing players for a very good reason that political parties, even with the rise of social media, still rely on uh, media outlets to funnel their messages out. Mm, Um, And they are highly concentrated. And so whilst it probably would be a good idea to uh, actually try to f- create uh, more space for more voices, um, I remain deeply cynical that it will actually happen. Did, do, you, do you think that News Corp papers, though, particularly those two mastheads in you know, the Australian as the National Broadsheet and the Daily Telegraph, which, of course, among other things, carried that uh, amazing story about Bill Shorten and his mother and you know the controversy around that, did they unduly influence this election result? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Um, so I don't know how – I mean, the audience for the Daily Telegraph is is significantly larger than for the Australian. Um, but whether or not uh, this kind of coverage is actually directly impacting voters and causing them to switch their vote is potentially a different question to, I guess, the sort of more – subtle uh, effects that um, media can have on how people perceive politics. So one is just simply what kinds of messages are out there and available and what is, I guess, the general climate Mm. and vibe of commentary. The second one, which might be more important um, in cases like the Australian, is the way it's an agenda setter. So if you're, you know, if you work in um, TV or radio, you're probably taking your cues from broadsheet media. um, and, And in that case that might really matter in that kind of sense. Yeah, I think the evidence on this one's quite interesting. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of research um, in the UK about the impact of the media on voting behaviour. And the dominant view is that it can make a difference when elections are close. So in the context of certain marginals, it can make a difference. And isn't it sort of almost misleading anyway to be worrying about whether it's some individual or group of individuals have been taken from one column to the other by that media when when in fact it's the more important and more likely role is that when you're proposing change that is you you're by definition you're proposing to change the government to make you know make me the prime minister for example then the job of my opponent the incumbent is to create doubt to undermine the safety of that decision. Voters, as you just said said before, you know, they're cautious. Um, and if you can create doubt and unrelenting negativity over the period about what the change might mean can eventually add up to someone um, along with some other things, you know, deciding not to, make, not to vote for change. Look, I think the, the key point for me is that you have a free market of ideas out there, that you have a free press and a free market of ideas, mm. right? Um, so the fundamental issue really is the issue around concentration of ownership and control of of media. And I think it was – I don't know if you followed the, the Tony Awards last night, um, but there's a new play out um, that looks historically at Murdoch and the role that Murdoch played in, in the UK – um, in breaking the cons- the monopoly of of the old the old publishing houses in right. in, in London, yeah, Fleet Street. and yeah. the irony is that he then came to Australia and he re- reproduced the same inequalities here. 
you know. Oh, he he was he was here long before. No, no, I know, yeah. but but it but but the I mean, the, the, you know, he was being eulogised um, at the Tony Awards last night as this kind of liberator of press freedom mm-hmm. in the UK. And I was sat there and thinking, well, they clearly don't understand <laughs> yeah, um, what happened yeah. in Australia. And and um, and actually, the concentration of ownership and control of the media has has continued to be a problem in the UK, but it's there's just been a restructuring of the nature of the of media capital. Um, but so the fundamental issue for me is, as long as you've got a free market of ideas, and those different ideas are given voice and expression through your political system, then, then that's okay. There's going to be a war of ideas, yeah. and there's going to be winners and losers in, in that war of ideas. Yeah. The problem is concentration of yeah. control. All right, we'll just take a break now. You're on Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, and we'll be back in a moment. When we do come back, I wouldn't mind just discussing quickly uh, what's going on in Britain because the debacle continues. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage. Now, we were discussing earlier trust and uh, its role in democracy and uh, I guess the institutions. All of those things seem to be in a state of some sort of crisis in the UK at the moment. As we speak, today is the first day officially of the race for the Tory leadership to replace um, um, Theresa May and to become therefore Prime Minister of Great Britain, which is uh, pretty extraordinary given that the people aren't going to get a chance to vote on that. Uh, so what do we make of all of that? I mean, we've got obviously Boris Johnson coming in, Jeremy Hunt, Michael Gove, uh, a cast of others, and uh, this is all going to be decided by uh, Conservative Party members, and then whoever takes on that job is going to presumably have a model for Brexit uh, again that's, I don't know, what well, chances yeah. have got? Most of the leading candidates are all hard Brexiteers of one form or another, um, you know, it's sort of a question of whether or not, uh, like Boris Johnson, for example, who has claimed that he will uh, leave uh, Britain on the 31st of October, no matter what, um, versus uh, other Brexiteers who uh, would, would like to renegotiate a deal. Um, but I think it doesn't, in, in many cases, there are, there are 10 candidates. Um, the party will go through several rounds of uh, balloting. And then I think, I think I'm, if I'm correct, the last two go to the membership. Yeah. Um, correct. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and most of them are, most of the leading candidates are, are Brexiteers or hard Brexiteers. But that doesn't change the actual situation on the no. ground, which is this is a minority government. That the parliament is completely riven and paralysed. There's not a majority for any particular way forward. And, and what is this the, doesn't seem to change any of that. And what is the incentive for the other European member states to cut a better deal? There well, they've is, said they there won't. is none. Mm. So, so last night I asked my son Jack, who he's the producer of Newsnight in the UK, to to give us kind of an update on where he thought we were with this. Um, and his his text back to me this morning goes something like this: um, We now leave on October the thirty first. Although I have to say that that's unlikely. 
mm-hmm. um, because there's not enough um, European parliamentary procedure available before the uh, before the break um, to actually allow for um, for that to happen. So this is sitting time of the European Parliament. Yeah, yeah. So so people are saying, well, there's just not enough procedural time for for o- October the thirty first to to work. Um, yes, it's a straightforward battle between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt. Um, change to the leadership election rules. Um, have taken the unpredictability out of that. So there was a time when the Tory leadership election was not predictable at all. You know, so John Major came from nowhere. Theresa May actually mm. came from, and it was decided nowhere. by the parliamentary party. It was right? it was decided by the parliamentary now, now, party. Now the parliamentary party whittles it down to two options, as Maria said, yeah. and and Boris the party wouldn't, membership wouldn't win with 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 an election of the parliamentary no, party. No, well, um, no one can get a majority for anything in this parliament. Exactly. <laughs> so 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 Johnson's likely to be the winner of the contest. Now, he says he can renegotiate the backstop, um, but a lot of key voices in the European Union are saying, well, he Back can't do, do that. Do you want to explain what the backstop is for listeners who are not across yeah, Brexit? Yeah, well, um, the backstop is really, um, in my view, a metaphor for the breakup of the union, right? So, so, the, so as you know, Britain had a long war between the North, between um, Britain and and um, I still the IRA over yeah. the <laughs> over the historical claim of right to um, to Northern an Ireland. island of of Ireland, um, as it was called in the Good Friday Agreement. Um, the majority of people in the north of Ireland want to remain part of the union, mm-hmm. right? And historically, have wanted to remain part of the union. There's a, a largely a religious um, dimension yeah. to that. That's right. Protestants. So, so the problem about leaving the European Union. Um, is that it? Um, it problematizes the border yeah, that's between right. the north and south, um, which at the moment, uh, in, a, in a huge breakthrough after all of that conflict and bloodshed, is, is, is a is a porous border. It's a border in um, you can simply you know trade and people can move freely across that border. That's and right. Once uh, Britain has left, and because because Ireland, the nation, the Republic of Ireland. Is a member of a member of the European yeah. Union. So the problem is that once Britain has left Europe, then what happens to that border? It yeah. becomes a hard border. That's right. It mm. becomes a hard border, um, and there's a whole range of controls and condi- conditionalities that emerges as a consequence. Now, there's a whole range of potential options to that. People are looking at uh, even a technological solution to that. They think that they have one, but it will take time to pilot and embed and all those sorts of things. Um, so so Bor- the, 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 the key narrative out of the Boris camp is that he thinks he can renegotiate the backstop. Um, but everybody really knows that he can't. Um, so then presumably he'll back no deal. Um, that will be blocked by the commons. And then you're likely to have a general election. Mm. Um, or alternatively, a second referen- re- referendum if he thinks he can win it, right? So he's going to – in the same way that Corbyn has to make a gambit between general election and second referendum, he has to make the, the same gambit. Um, but it's likely that he thinks he, he has a better chance with the election. As if he loses the second referendum government um, – vote, it will be a remain vote, so government will fall anyway, right? So he's, he's unlikely to go for a second re- referendum. Um, the only real sustainable way out is a majority government or a Labour-Liberal-Democratic coalition. 
And the Trump, one of it seems to me one of the troubles here is that the, for the outsider, the obvious answer is that you have utter political gridlock. You have no way forward for any particular option. That is really the, 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 the perfect conditions for actually having the people decide something. And that's when it, you know, a, a matter ought to go to the people. Now, in this case, ordinarily, I suppose you might say that's when you have an election, but an election doesn't necessarily resolve this problem unless it actually is explicitly a question in the election. Uh, so, well, well, even then, right? The the problem is, is that the parties themselves, both sides, uh, both major parties in the UK, are split on this yeah. issue. And so, even having an election and having the victory of one side over another doesn't resolve anything. doesn't really resolve any, anything if if you if you can't get that through um, the Commons. Um, so, so it is it is a mess. And I guess one of the most interesting things that I sort of heard when I was in the, in the UK a few months ago was people are completely exhausted by this discussion. Uh, you know, even 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 people who are like you know, I was talking to a lot of political scientists because I'm a yeah. political scientist. Uh, even even political scientists are exhausted by this um, discussion. And I had other um, people sort of say to me things like, "I just want an outcome, any." outcome. Mm. And ironically, uh, probably the way to actually achieve the most amount of not talking about Brexit ever again is to have a referendum and for Remain to win because you don't have to change anything. But if you do, if you, I mean, if you do uh, leave, that, then that's all you're going to talk about for the next decade because you actually need to work out I, where I, does the UK stand on as every much single as it pains me. possible. Yeah, as much yeah. as it pains me, the I suspect that uh, I'd agree with you right up to sort of one aspect of that condition, that last condition you mentioned. I, I'd suggest the, the only way it's going to have proper legitimacy is if you have a second referendum and they decisively vote to leave. Now, I'm not a leaver. I, I, mean, I don't have any skin in this game, but uh, you know, I'm very saddened by that referendum in 2016 and uh, and and everything else that's happened since. But I am persuaded by the idea. And Mark, this goes to uh, an area very mm. central to your work. Um, I'm persuaded by the idea of um, the role of trust here. There's a there's a very strong narrative in the UK that um, that democracy is the democratic will of the people as expressed in that referendum has never been expressed and that the elites are finding every possible way to conspire to not deliver on that withdrawal from Europe uh, and that a second referendum is one of those devices for trying to get out of having that clearly expressed will. So even if Remain got up in a second referendum, which would be fought tooth and nail by the people who figure they've already won that argument. Uh, I suspect it would fuel a very strong division between, um, you know, people outside of London, particularly, uh, you know, the, the sort of older working class people who felt that they've already expressed their view on this. Yeah, look, it's a very, it's a very, very complex issue. Um, the counter to that would be that. Um, the original referendum result was um, a protest vote against the government of the day. Mm. Um, the people weren't thinking long term when when they made that decision. All right. However, the, the way in which you articulated is where we are at now. However, I think that there's uh, increasing support for an alternative approach, um, and that is to um, throw deeper democratization at the problem. Right. So, for example, um, Ireland struggled for a long, long period of time over its antiquated constitution, right? Particularly around abortion laws and a whole range of other um, quite um, regressive um, 
parts of their constitution that were completely antipathetic to um, progression in social equality. Um, the parliament felt that it couldn't actually address the issue because the parliament was too divided. So it created an Irish constitutional convention, um, a citizens' assembly that was comprised of two-thirds citizen, one-third politician to come together to, to address this wicked problem and to come out with a series of recommendations that they would then put to the legislature. Um, what happened in the Irish context is we saw the creation of what I would call um, and what John Dryzek, um has called and Caroline Hendricks here at the NU, ANU has called um, a deliberative system approach. Yeah. So ultimately, um, in relation to that particular issue, you had a citizens' assembly, right? You had um, plebiscites. You had um, deliberations within the legislature. Yeah, all expert brought together, yeah. expert facilitators, all brought together to, to deepen the legitimacy of of the decision. Um, and there has increased um, um, support for this. There's been a massive petition in in London um, around developing a, a similar approach to dealing with the the Brexit debacle. So where politicians are undecided, where there's a significant disconnect between the commons and the people in the way forward, you need to create a new way of doing democracy to make the breakthrough. And can you do it amidst it a crisis? It requires courageous leadership. Can you do it in a crisis though? It requires courageous leadership. But it does because question. this does come down to people um, being willing to, to push aside their own personal preferences yeah. in the national interest to make a breakthrough. And I guess what was important in the Irish case, like particularly around abortion, was that uh, the, the the process was like, you know, heavily facilitated to make sure everyone got a say, so everyone felt like they had a say. Mm. And they also were very careful about the experts that they picked, that it was basically uh, everyone sort of thought that they were legitimate and and that they were even-handed in the in the sort of pro and negative case. And I guess that's the thing that's the real challenge with something like Brexit is that it's really multifaceted mm -hmm. uh, because it's more than just, you know, a single issue like, uh, you know, a discrete policy domain like abortion, which has obviously other like flow-on yeah. effects. But Brexit is, is, is complex across the board. Um, and so... Um, yeah, I, I agree with um, with Mark that um, you know these forms of government are probably actually essential to returning legitimacy and, and senses of trust to our our deliberative processes generally beyond um, mm. Brexit. And if you look at Australia, there's a whole range of unresolved constitutional problems that we have here. Mm -hmm. You know, we still haven't really addressed the dual citizenship issue. Obviously, we've got the, the profound problem of indigenous recognition. Mm. Um, we've got, you know, you look at the, the data on, on the future of the Federation. I mean, exactly. people are crying out for reform of the Federation. Okay. But no political party is courageous enough to take on that particular issue. So that's a classic example of the way in which we need to think about how you do democracy differently to make a breakthrough on issues that are fundamental, really, to how representative our system of government is and our ability to address the fundamental public policy problems that are keeping up as up awake at night. Well, I think we'll have to leave that there. Professor Mark Evans from the Museum of Australian Democracy and Dr. Maria Tafliger from the School of Politics and International Relations. Uh, thanks for joining me again today on Democracy Sausage and uh, we'll see you again next week. Bye. Cheers. Bye.